Uh, this episode's from the archives. In November 2017, one of my first interviews was with Ambassador Rudolph Perrina. I was very fortunate to be able to speak with such an experienced and respected player from the Cold War. But sadly, he passed away in June of last year. I'm just very grateful I was able to spend time with the legend of the diplomatic corps. He's greatly missed, and I hope you enjoy the episode. If all you have is a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. And if you put, you know, if the only thing you have and you value is the military, everything is going to start looking like a conflict. My name is Mark Valley, and you are listening to The Live Drop, where I interview spies, intelligence, personnel, <laughs> diplomats, con men, and sometimes the actors who play them. Uh, right now, I'm lucky to have with me Ambassador Rudolph V. Perina. I'm going to go through a little bio of you, sir. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. He's serving in the capacity of the Charge d'Affaires. Did I say that right? That's right. It's kind of French, right? At the United States Embassy in Bratislava. Right. Previously, he served as the Charge d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Prague, Reykjavik. From 2004 to 2006, he served as the Deputy Director of the State Department's Policy Planning Staff and Ambassador of the Republic of Moldova. Right. And it goes on. It goes on. 32-year Foreign Service career <laughs> Ambassador Perrin specialized in Russian, Eastern European, German, NATO affairs. He served at the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa, the NATO desk of the State Department, the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, the U.S. Mission in Berlin, U.S. Mission to NATO in Brussels, and as Director for European and Soviet Affairs the National Security Council staff. He speaks several languages, including Czech, Russian, German, and French. Allons, on y va. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start out. I want to talk to you eventually about uh, Berlin and this and this um, term that you coined for me called Berlinery. Berlinery, that's right. Which uh, I would love to. That's what to. we used to call it. It's, it's, uh, who used to call it that? When we were in Berlin, it, it referred to all the, the, the intricate traditions and precedents and ins and outs that only people who served in Berlin knew, you know, the rules of the corridors and uh, the rules of how you go from one sector to another. And when I left in 1985, I thought there were only a few people in the State Department who really knew Berlinery. And I thought, my God, this guarantees me a job for the rest of my life in the you State Department. Yeah. yeah, because I knew all this stuff, you know, the corridors. And five years later, it was all history. <laughs> it's all completely the, gone. The, the, the wall disappeared, yeah. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, uh, we met at a function for the Vendor Museum where Justin Jampel was also putting together this Cold War Museum. We're gonna, we'll be, I'll see you there this weekend. One of the things he did was he started collecting all these, all this, all the material from East Germany because he saw it as a dying culture, a disappearing uh-huh. culture. And then whenever I go to Berlin, I always see it as this it's like pompeii right i mean berlin is, berlin went on but the but the american sector it's like it's like dodge city it's, it's like there might as well just be like tumbleweeds just rolling down clay LA, right? really really yeah and the whole language that you're talking about the the berlinery yeah well it was i mean there were these very intricate rules of you know relating all relating to the very peculiar status of berlin and the status issues that evolved from the Quadripartite Agreement in 1971 that really stabilized the situation in Berlin. But it was, uh, everybody kept their position of principle. So we had very different views from the Soviets on, for example, what East German, what, what East Berlin was. We considered it the Soviet sector, but the Soviets claimed they considered it part of the GDR. The GDR said it was their capital. But we never saw East Berlin as part of the GDR. And so you, you, you had to do all these, which related to the way we crossed Checkpoint Charlie, for example, probably that you're familiar with, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that we didn't deal with the East German guards. 
we just showed them our flag orders and uh, we, we, we tried not to recognize the sovereignty of the GDR in East Berlin. Even though we contradicted ourselves because we also had an embassy, we set up an embassy in East Berlin, but the way we got around that is we said this is an embassy to the GDR but not in the GDR. <laughs> and that was really our position. I'm, I'm not making this up. That was our legal position on our embassy in, in East Berlin. We said that it's an embassy to the GDR, but not in the GDR. But, you know, in a practical sense, oh, everybody some, tried to make things work. I have some, there it is. I have the flag order is fantastic. Look at this, my and you showed them through the glass window, right? Yeah. Yeah. You never talked to the GDR guards. You just no. show this to them. And if there was ever a problem, we called the Soviets. We didn't deal with the GDR if there was a Berlin problem. Right. That was also an incentive to, to not do anything wrong because... It's one thing to you know anger the Germans, but when you got wow. the Russians involved, Ambassador Perrin is looking at my U.S. Forces Berlin identification card. This was the identification card that people used to walk to to go through checkpoint yeah. Charlie. I heard. See, I didn't keep mine. They didn't let me keep mine when I left. Uh-uh. We could probably get one made for you. I know. Mean, <laughs> I know a few people. Yeah. So sure. yeah, we actually are in the the sister city of Berlin, Los Angeles. Um, yeah. I want to go back to Berlin, but I just wanted to talk to you a little bit. Like, um, you grew up near Chicago, and what kind of influenced your direction into diplomacy and career as a diplomat? Well, I went to school at the University of Chicago undergraduate. I, I actually, I was born in Europe. Uh, I was born in what is now the Czech Republic, and I came to the U.S. as a as a very young person, was five years old, and we lived in New York initially, and then Cleveland. And then Seattle, Washington, and then I moved back east. I went to the University of Chicago, and then I went to Columbia for graduate work. So I've sort of trans, you know, transfixed the uh, transverse the U.S. But what made me go into diplomacy is is very simple. I needed a job. <laughs> I, was, I was finishing up my Ph.D. and uh, I was married, and my wife was pregnant. And I was figuring out how to how to drive a taxi in New York. It was very hard to get teaching jobs then. And I saw this ad to take the Foreign Service exam. And I took the Foreign Service exam. And lo and behold, some crazy thing. I, I, uh, I didn't do that well on the written one, but I did very well on the oral one. And within six months, I was in the State Department. Anyway, we went into the Foreign Service, and we ended up really liking it. Uh, my wife liked it also, and we stayed in for 32 years, mainly in Europe, which doesn't happen now anymore. It was mainly in Europe because it was a good part of it was in the Cold War. And, uh, you know, I worked a lot on Cold War issues. About two-thirds of my career was during the Cold War, and then a third after the Cold War. So nowadays, when you go into the Foreign Service, you know, you, you get you have a good chance of going to Iraq or uh, the Middle East. Absolutely, or, yeah. I mean, the focus has shifted away from Europe. Mm-hmm. But at that time, Europe was still was the center of the action. And In what year was that when you took the FSOT? Well, that was, I entered the Foreign Service in 1970, 1974, uh, so it was about 1973 sometime I took the exam. 
So Vietnam had just wrapped up. Vietnam was wrapping up. Before that, if, if I had entered probably a year earlier, I would have gone to Vietnam. I mean, that's where they were sending people. I got in, and and uh, my my first tour, because I was actually still finishing up my dissertation, was in Canada, in Ottawa. But then after that, I went to Moscow and Berlin and uh, stayed most of my most of my career was in Europe, actually. You hear generals talking about you know how much how much they wish we would put more focus on diplomacy well i found you know particularly in berlin where we where you you interact a lot with the with with the military and but in belgrade also in 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 many of my assignments i mean most something there's this image that that military personnel are sort of gung-ho warriors and they want to go out and fight and get into combat and you know get into war and and i think that's that's totally mistaken most of the military people i've known uh are very sensible and reasonable because they've seen the horrors of war and they see what 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 war really does firsthand and so uh, they're sometimes among the more cautious people, you know. I mean, I mean, people look at them and they think, well, the military, they're hawks. And I find on the contrary, like one person I knew very well was Colin Powell. I've worked with He's a good friend. I've worked closely with him. And he was a great general, I think, because he was very cautious and he knew how to handle the military. And, and he was very... I mean, he knew how to handle military things, and and he was very conscious of if you get into a fight, you have to have a strategy, an exit strategy, and how to get out. And you have to know you don't get into open-ended wars. And uh, so, uh, you know, we've always, uh, I've always had very good experiences in, in, in working with the military. And I think there is a lot of, a lot of misconception of people who see who, who see generals as hawks. My, I guess my other part was how do they how how do you actually work together? I mean, do we need diplomats? And I think you do for the simple reason that if all you have is a military, you know, there's the old saying: if all you have is a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. The only thing you have and you value is the military. Everything is going to start looking like a conflict. You need diplomacy. I mean, most problems in the world, I think, can be worked out diplomatically. And uh, Berlin, for example, is a classic example, because even though in Berlin, the U.S. and Russia had totally opposing viewpoints on so many issues, on what is East Berlin, what is the status of this city, you know, totally in principle, totally opposing views. But yet in the quadripartite agreement, because we wanted to work it out, we worked out compromises that that made it possible that actually stabilized the situation in Berlin amazingly, and everybody kept this position of principle. And you need diplomats to do something like that. And uh, if, if you have the military, I mean, what you can do is threaten, but you can't threaten forever, and you can't even threaten for a very long time without losing your credibility. So it almost seems like as a diplomat, if you like if you go into a meeting knowing that you have maniac over your shoulder who's unnamed, right? Who's gonna take a chance, who has a hammer and everything's a nail. Um, how would that affect you vis a vis whoever it is you're making you're trying to make an agreement with diplomatic? Yeah, yeah. 
Take a good guy. Well, I guess the, the the thing is, how would it affect the other guy? You know, the guy you're dealing with, the guy who might be the nail. Uh, how does how does it affect him? And uh, I, you know, I'm 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 sure it's it's intimidating to him, and in certain circumstances, that intimidation might might prove valuable for a short while. But if the but but there are real dangers to it. I mean, it it can lead the other guy to adopting the same kind of tactic, you know, uh, the same kind of intimidating tactic. It can really backfire, and then particularly if the other guy concludes that it's it's just all bluster. Of course, you lose credibility, which is which is which is the basic thing that that you need that any country needs. You need credibility. One of the angles that you have or part of the currency that you have is that America isn't always doing what's best for America, but we're looking toward these other countries, toward you know, developing democratic principles and, and freedoms yeah, and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. I mean, if you, if you kind of throw out that, that, look, America is looking for some higher, has some higher <laughs> ideal... How does that affect diplomacy? Or did that ever exist? Did, it, did everybody just think it was just, look, you guys are out for yourself? No, no. It, it, was, it was genuinely true, I think. You know, the two were not, are not contradictory. We always said that we support liberal democracy in the world as an order, and we support human rights. Not out of altruism, necessarily. It's also in our own interest to do that, because we believe that liberal democracy and respect for human rights leads to the most stable, healthy governments around the world. And that is in our interest. Our interest is to have a stable, healthy world with minimal conflicts and revolutions and upheavals. And we believe that having, that promoting liberal democracy and human rights contributes to that. So when we support human rights, when we support liberal democracy, that that doesn't contradict doing what is best for America. You know, we believe that that serves American interests because when you have dictatorships, experiences sooner or later they explode or or they they lead to uprisings, they lead to upheavals, revolutions, bloodshed, and then people tend to look to us to get involved and to to mop up things you know when so you've seen it what's going to happen ambassador <laughs> that's kind of what i want to ask you i thought we were talking get, about berlin no, we're going to talk about the future no i guess we can get back to berlin but berlin is a great example i talked to um uh, i talked to professor trennan and he's saying Military Dimitri Trent. Yeah, he yeah, worked yeah. for the Military But he talked about he talked about it in Berlin. He said, well, it really worked. He said, American and Soviet relations in Berlin worked because of, he said it was really had a large, had a lot to do with this mission where they were looking at us, so we were looking at them, and that there was sort of an inherent cross-transparency. You know, we even had listening stations that tapped into their con- yeah, conversations. Yeah, yeah. They tapped oh, into yeah, ours. Yeah, so the more yeah, information yeah. everybody had, you know, that was an example where American and Soviet relations worked because they knew more about each other. Well, I think that's true. I think that's partly true. But but they allowed the other side to know enough because I, I, I think both sides made the decision that they didn't want Berlin to erupt. I mean, they, they made a rational decision that... Uh, they didn't want Berlin to blow up. They they each had other problems. You know, the Soviet Union had Afghanistan. We had our own problems. And uh, we wanted that stability. Both sides wanted that stability. And, and that decision was made. I'll tell you, th- this is something else. Sometimes people ask me, 
What is the most important thing you've learned in 32 years of working in international relations and in foreign policy? And uh, somebody once asked me that, <laughs> and this is what I answered. It is the importance of individual leaders to the fate and destiny of nations. What the leadership of a country. What I, what I have been most amazed by is the importance of the quality of leadership for the fate and destiny of countries and of international relations. Leaders make decisions, and they make bad decisions, and they make good decisions. And I can give you many examples of this. Uh, a, a classic one that I often give is, you know, at the end of the Cold War, both the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia fell apart, okay? Yugoslavia fell apart in the bloodiest civil war in Europe since World War II. The Soviet Union fell apart with almost no bloodshed. There were a few conflicts on the peripheries that I worked on, like Nagorno-Karabakh and so on. But it was nothing compared to Yugoslavia. This was amazing. This was an empire, literally, that fell apart with almost no bloodshed. Why is this? It, it's counterintuitive because, you know, the Soviet... Uh, Yugoslavia was, was our poster child during the Cold War. We loved Yugoslavia. Right. We, yeah. thought it was, we thought it was a great country. The Soviet Union was the evil empire. And yet here the Soviet Union breaks apart peacefully and Yugoslavia breaks apart in this incredible civil war. All in, in ethnic, you know. And they were very similar, actually. You know, the Soviet Union was a multi, multi-ethnic empire. And the reason is the, the quality of leadership that, you know, Yugoslavia had the misfortune to have a confluence of very bad leaders who tried to, 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 to use nationalism, use it for their own purposes, to whip it up, to whip up ethnic hatred for parochial political reasons. Milosevic, whom I dealt with, was the worst of these. But it was, it, was a, it was a bad, it was a perfect storm of bad leadership. Whereas the Soviet Union had Gorbachev and then Yeltsin, who made the right decisions. They decided that they were not going to resist this, that if the country was going to come apart, they were going to let that happen. Just like Gorbachev decided, if the wall, if, if people are going to tear that Berlin Wall down... I'm not going to fight it. These are momentous decisions, and they're made by leaders. They're made by people, you know? They, they could make a decision very different. I mean, think of how lucky the world is, because think of what a disaster it would have been if the Soviet Union had fallen apart the same way Yugoslavia did. I mean, these guys had nuclear weapons, you know, in the Republic. They they could have started tossing nuclear weapons at one another. But it worked out the, the right way. I mean, another example, when I was a young guy in college, there was one part of the world where we expected there would be the bloodiest civil war in of the 20th century. And that country was South Africa, where everybody thought it was inevitable that it was going to blow up and you were going to have a disastrous, bloody civil war. And nobody imagined that a Nelson Mandela and an F.W. de Klerk would emerge and prevent that country from, from disaster. And there are really many examples I have seen of this, of how important leaders are. To, to to the destiny of countries, and uh, it's one of the reasons I don't sleep well nowadays. <laughs>
what are the qualities of a, of a? Yeah, well, you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on on every every leader, but but certainly, if you take the premise that the U.S. has worked on for the last century of that liberal democracy and human rights are good things, and promoting them is a good thing then the number of good leaders in the world has really declined, you know, because liberal democracy is declining in the world. It's declining in Europe. I mean, basically, Germany is now... Angela Merkel is uh, one of the strongest proponents of this philosophy in the world. But a lot of the countries of the, of the, of the former Warsaw Pact have, are sort of turning, turning rightward. It's a worrisome situation. I Why mean, do you think that is happening? Is it? Is it? It's. Uh, it. It really is sort of hard to understand. I mean. Uh, I, I mean, uh, this is the question for our time. P- people say, you know, the common interpretation is that it's a. It's a reaction to globalization, and uh, that that globalization is sort of backfiring in liberal democratic countries. It may be that actually the rise of Asia, the rise of other areas of the world is putting pressure on the West because our own, I think, the pie is sort of being redivided a little bit globally. China is rising. China is going to become a significant, you know, great economic power. Asia is as a whole. And this this is putting pressure on the West and that it's sort of a reaction. You know, people will see uh, job losses and things like that. But it's difficult to it, it it is difficult to understand and and there are pressures also uh, you know the the immigration pressures are are a big factor in in Europe I mean uh, the refugee situation is is a is a big problem that's uh, I I was living in in Bratislava at the time when you know there was the great uh, refugee influx and Angela Merkel led a million refugees into Germany and they, seems, uh, they seem to have absorbed them they seem to have observed them uh, abs- absorbed them but Angela Merkel has paid a political price for it you know i i mean i think i think she did the, she did an admirable thing in taking these people but there has been a reaction to it even in germany as it's we been say. a relaxed reaction in the czech republic yeah, well. There's been a reaction in Hungary and Poland and in all of those countries. Not so much to the refugee situation because they, they actually, not many refugees actually want to go to Hungary, want to settle in Hungary or the Czech Republic. They want to go to Germany or, or Austria. But but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a worrisome situation now it is because liberal democracy, which we have traditionally supported and which in my diplomatic career, we have, you know, it was our job over ways to promote that and to promote human rights and so on. They are on the decline. They have been on the decline. I mean, that was the idea of globalism, right? It was like, we'll, we'll build a middle class in some of these other developing nations, and then we can all trade and be happy together. Yeah, well, well, the idea of globalization was also just to, to open the world up to trade, you know, to take away trade barriers. But it was inevitable that that was going to shift a lot of economic weight to countries where wages are lower and production is more efficient. I remember, you know, I remember that when we were opening our relations with China. You know, when I was growing up, China was this exotic place. If you had something from red China, wow, that was really exotic. And then we opened up relations. And I remember the arguments when we were opening up relations with China. 
and people were saying, look, the, you know, there's a billion people. If we sell every one of them one toothbrush, <laughs> we're going to sell so many toothbrushes, you know, yeah. this great market. And it somehow didn't occur to people that we're not going to sell them the toothbrush. They're going to sell us the toothbrush. <laughs> it was quite amazing. They're going to sell us the toothbrush, and they're going to sell it, you know, really at, at, at one-tenth the price of what our toothbrush costs. Wait a minute. I, that, that's, that's not fair. <laughs> but but that was really true. That was one of the arguments when we were opening up relations, uh, relations with China. There is a, a global somewhat of a global redistribution of wealth going on. Right. And uh, and I think part of what we may be seeing is this reaction to this to this a certain redistribution of wealth which is probably inevitable, which in the long term can is probably good for the world. Which, which is which is hard to accept if you're the guy who was making American toothbrushes, you know, suddenly you're you're out of a job and, and out of work and so on. So <laughs> you see communism making a comeback? <laughs> well, not 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 communism, not in the not in the form that we knew it, but but socialism, you know. I mean, uh uh well, not at the moment, certainly not at the moment. But who knows, you know, the world is is very unpredictable. I mean, I know at the end of the Cold War, you know, people were saying history has stopped and this is the triumph of liberal democracy and nothing's going to change anymore and the West is one and, and, and capitalism is one and, and democracy is one and uh, woe and behold. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I think we're eventually, there'll be some some amalgam of political systems that emerges. Yeah, so let's talk about let's talk about Berlin. Berlin. What years were you there? I was there from nineteen eighty one to nineteen eighty five. And I did two different jobs. For two years I was the uh the liaison to the Soviets on Berlin issues. That was I was in West Berlin. That's very important to say because we did have an embassy, as I say, in East Berlin. But I was in West Berlin. We dealt. We dealt with. We were called a mission, not an embassy, and uh, we dealt with specifically with Berlin issues. And I was the liaison to the Soviets when there were problems. I had a counterpart in the uh, Soviet embassy in East Berlin, and uh, we. Were would meet and deal on Berlin issues. Then my second two years, I was the liaison to the Berlin government, uh, the American liaison. And I had an office in the Rathaus, the city hall. And because, you know, we did not, as I said, we didn't consider East Berlin a part of the GDR, but we also didn't consider West Berlin a part, part of, of, West the, of West Germany. Uh, West Berlin was not a part of West Germany at that time, oh, wow. in, in our view. It was still an occupied city. All of Berlin was still an occupied city by the Allies. So even though the, the Germans sort of ran it, technically it was under our oversight and under our, uh, I, I don't want to say supervision, but, but we were the sovereign power. In other words, they were not the sovereign power. The occupying allies were still the sovereign power. But did the did the West Berliners consider themselves West Germans? Well, they they considered themselves 
citizens, but they knew they knew that uh, our position on West Berlin, and they accepted it because it was actually a small price to pay for the defense of Berlin. I mean, they were getting us and the British and the French to defend West Berlin uh, for the price of saying, yes, it's not a part of West Germany. For example, whenever the, the West German president flew from West Germany to, to Berlin, to West Berlin, we went to the airport and greeted him to make the point <laughs> with the, that he was coming with, he was coming as our guest with the US army band from Andrew Ferris no but playing, we were just yeah. there that was my that was part of my job also and i and a french guy uh, my french counterpart and my british counterpart we would go to the airport and when uh, richard von weizsäcker who was the president and then karstens after him came to berlin we went there and we shook his hand and we said, welcome to Berlin, to make the point that we were still the sovereign power. And he, he knew that. I mean, this was, it was part sort of a kabuki dance, but it was to maintain these, these positions of principle. You, you know, so th this was, again, a, a part of the, the unique part of the Berlinery. That, and it's also what allowed all of the espionage that when I, it was probably the most spied upon city, I think, during the Cold War, because you had these, these four allies in their own sectors where they were basically sovereign. I mean, they, they could control the telephone system. They, they, could, they could build whatever they wanted. They could build listening towers. They, they could tap into telephone systems. They could basically do whatever they wanted to and always having cert a certain, you know, immunity as sort of a sovereign power. So it was very much a, a, a spied upon city because we were the sovereign power there. I'd never been to any base where people were so suspicious of, <laughs> of meeting someone new, right? <laughs> and the less you knew, the more it was, oh, we must be working in building or whatever it was or something. Like if you say, oh, I don't really, I just work for the uh, clay. You're like, oh, great, another one. You wouldn't really know. I mean, I was, I'm just concerned. You said you're the liaison to the, to the Soviets at the time. And what, were, what did they want? I mean, what did they really want? Well, well we, we used the Soviets a lot. Like, for example, if we had a problem in some of the corridors, you know, if the, and the East Germans, because they were sort of the little guy here caught between these two big guys, they liked to cause trouble sometimes. They were always testing us, you know, like going across Checkpoint Charlie. Uh, they were testing, you know. They would maybe delay you or want you to, to roll the window down or to talk to them or something. We, we never talked to the East Germans. We just showed them the card that you had through the window. That's essentially what happened in 61 with the tank standoff. That was like, or what was that, 57? <laughs> yeah, well, they were frequent standoffs. Sometimes they, they would, like, say they're closing an air corridor for some reason. We wouldn't go to the GDR to complain because we didn't see them as the sovereign power. We went to the Russians to complain. And the Russians would say, well, you should go to the GDR. It's their capital. But then the Russians would fix the problem. See, the Russians were also in a contradictory position. I mean, they had to support their ally on the positions of principle, but in practice... They they wanted to remain an occupying power because it also gave them certain rights in West Berlin, you know, which they didn't want to lose. They were able to travel into West Berlin. 
they were one of the four powers steer, still in Spandau prison, for example, guarding Rudolf Hess. They, they had privileges in coming into West Berlin, and they were on, included in certain Allied discussions and so on. The Soviets also, they, they sort of played these two games, you know. On, on, the, on a formal level, they had to support the GDR. But then when we complained, they would privately go to the GDR and say, hey, cut this out. And so we worked with them on that. And because I had previously served in Moscow, I came to Berlin from Moscow and I knew Russian. So that's that's how I got this job. Just as a, as a point of interest, I uh, once my uh, Soviet colleague invited me to visit the Soviet embassy in East Berlin, which was this huge building right at the beginning of Unter den Linden, uh, this famous avenue. And I walked in and he was sort of hosting me and he said... First, there's this big marble staircase when you walk in. And he said, do you know, you know where the marble for that staircase came from? And I said, no. And he said, well, that was the marble that Hitler was taking to Moscow to build his monument on defeating the Soviet Union. And we made it into the staircase of our embassy in Berlin. To me, that sounds like an apocryphal story. I mean, it just it, it sort of doesn't sound right. But anyway, that's what he told me. And then we went upstairs, and there was this leather chair there in, in, in the office. And he asked me to sit in the chair. And he said, do you know what chair you're sitting in? I said, no. And he said, well, that was Hitler's favorite chair from the Reichskanzlei. <laughs> And that, I think, is probably true. They probably dug up, well, I don't know if it was Hitler's chair, but it's probably a chair from the Reichskanzlei. But, you know, to think that, that you would be impressed that you're sitting in Hitler's chair, I mean, a lot of people would be pretty disgusted by that. But it was very Soviet. <laughs> I mean, to, but, you know, it, now it's, it's really a very different place, I mean, from what it was in the Soviet Union. And now, and at one time, particularly after, after the end of the Cold War, it was like 180 degrees opposite because it was a city where anything went with money. You could get anything. You could oh, buy in anything. In the 90s, right? Yeah, in the 90s. You know, you, you, anything went if you had money. Uh, in our time, it was quite the opposite. It was a really controlled city where you couldn't get anything with money. You know, nothing was available. Was the Pushkin Cafe still open? <laughs> Pushkin Cafe, yeah, they had their cafes and their famous restaurants. And yeah. the, but but now, you know, it, it it's a very different place, I mean. But a lot of the old Moscow, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 I think some of the, the mentality is still there, I mean, particularly in the government. If you want to talk about intelligence things, I never had, had run-ins with the KGB. It was mainly people, I worked in the political section on, on foreign affairs issues, and so I interviewed people in the ministry. The people in the embassy who had problems with the KGB were the people who worked on human rights issues, who dealt with the dissidents right. and with the refuseniks. And these were the people who sometimes got sort of beaten up, particularly in Leningrad. They had a, a very tough mayor, Romanov, in, in, in Leningrad, who really uh, was a very hard liner. But these were the people who got into trouble. But the KGB, you know, it, it was very clever the way the KGB worked. We all lived in, in apartments that were basically from the Soviet Union, uh, that were Soviet apartments, you know, and you couldn't control 
you basically knew that they were probably tapped and you, you couldn't discuss secret or confidential things. But what they would sometimes do, and, and this did happen to us also, is you would come home one day and some simple thing would happen, like a lamp that was always on that table would suddenly be on that table. Something totally innocent, innocuous, but the point was to send you a message. We were here. And, you know, behave yourself or something worse can happen to you. I mean, something worse can happen to your apartment. The Stasi had something like that. And I think they picked it up from I mean, the original KGB. Like yeah, the yeah. They had. yeah, yeah. And, and it was very clever because they would do things that were below the threshold. You wouldn't go into the foreign ministry and complain, you know, somebody moved a lamp in my apartment. You, <laughs> you couldn't do that. You know, yeah. you'd be laughed out. But yet it was the message was, was, you know, you are not alone. <laughs> we are here. We are watching you. We have power over you. We can come into your place. We can do bad things. And sometimes, and there were gradations. Sometimes they would unplug people's refrigerators or freezers when they were away on leave or something, cause a lot of damage to food. And they, they, they could break things, you know. I mean, there were levels of what they could do to you. And this was the message. You know, we're here, and we uh, can someday influence your elections. We could, <laughs> yeah. That, that was the ultimate. <laughs> we will cross boundaries. <laughs> that's what it was. That was the ultimate of moving the furniture around. I think that's it what was it was. That's what it was coming to. But I, I found it very clever. And some people were really disturbed by this. You know, some people it really upset them to think that someone had been in their apartment. And someone had, had moved things, and if they couldn't find something, you know, they blamed it on the KGB or, you know, something didn't work. Keys, yeah, they blamed it on the KGB. KGB. Damn KGB, you know, took my car key, hid my car keys. Again. <laughs> but, of course, that, that worked, and, and a lot of it, I'm sure, was just was not the KGB. But it worked in their interest because it, it, it served the same function of sort of always reminding you that you're very vulnerable. And that they can do they can do bad things to you if they wanted to, and yet reminding you at a level that you 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 couldn't possibly complain about you know you couldn't make a big issue of it because people would think you're silly they they were they were very good at that do you like Russians generally I think russian pe yeah i I do like russian pe we had we had two young daughters in Russia. Russians loved children, they were very nice to children they was giving children candy and everything. I do like Russians. I feel sorry for Russians. They've had a rough history. I mean, they never really had a democratic system. They never had a chance. They, they've gone through enormous suffering. I mean, what, what they what they went through, you know, World War Two, and before that, the Stalin, you know, Stalinist, uh, what he did Purges. to Ukraine, well, well the starvation and uh, what, what Stalin did to the country. They've had a very, very rough history, and yet they persevere. So I, I do like Russians. I, I don't like the government. Yet, you know, I think their governments have really not served them very well. Dr. Trenton was saying that it's because you th in order to understand the Russian relationship to government, you have to understand the Mongols. <laughs> <laughs> when they invaded, I was like, all right, it's going to be Yeah, no, I, I, you know, you feel sorry for the Russians. They really, they've had a very, very rough history. They really have. And how, how old were you when you came from, was it Czech Republic or... Yeah, Slovakia. I was five years old when I, when I five years came old. to the U.S. Yeah. How do you think that's affected your character at all, or do you notice any difference? Well, I, I no, I, I think it has affected my character in, in the sense of 
making me interested in international relations and in you know i sometimes tell people you know in the fragility americans i'll tell you one thing americans don't realize is also how fragile a social order can be i mean i was born very frankly i was born in the third reich my parents escaped from basically russian stalinism in my short career, I lived in one country which dissolved into one of the bloodiest civil wars of the 20th century. I lived in another country that disappeared completely off the face of the map, the Soviet Union, you know, in Yugoslavia. And I see how places that appear stable, one, I, I mean, I see the fragility of it. Americans, you know, they've been very fortunate. They've had such a long string of relative stability. But really, bad things can sometimes happen in a very short while. Things that you really don't expect. Like what other intelli- what other um, like counterintelligence precautions would you have to take? <laughs> what I, what I did get involved in is sometimes we picked up Soviets in West Berlin who were trying to who were trying to recruit soldiers and things like that. And there were about two or three incidents where we picked, and then I dealt with my counterpart. We detained the guy, and I called up my counterpart, and we protested and said this guy was doing, you know, was trying to meet some soldiers in a bar and pay him off for information. But then we threw him out. I mean, we let him go because there was this, again, sort of a certain immunity for the Allied forces, so we, we respected that. But the other very interesting thing that you haven't asked about that I wanted to mention in Berlin was at the, toward the end of my time. You're, you're a really good interview, by the way. You're remembering questions. <laughs> no, about the hijackings to Tempelhof. Do you know about those? The the Polish hijackings to Tempelhof? We had, you know, Solidarność. Was, there was a crackdown happening in, in Poland on Solidarność in 84 and 85. And Poles were trying to get out of Poland. Right. And we had in our last two years about a dozen planes I'd say I can't remember the exact number but it almost seemed like a dozen Polish planes that were hijacked in Poland and flew to Tempelhof and landed in Tempelhof of people wanting to get out of Poland and because they you know the distance between Berlin and Poland it's only like 50 miles Mm -hmm. from Berlin to, to the Polish border people would hijack planes drive them to Tempelhof, and they would get into the American sector, into American hands. Great way to get out of Poland. And we had small planes, crop dusters, fly across. One one guy, a crop duster, I'll never forget, he got a crop duster, and he painted red stars on it, you know. <laughs> make it look like a MiG fighter. <laughs> make it look like a, like a Russian plane. And, and he flew with a road map about 100 feet above ground, following roads to find his way to Berlin. And he flew this into Tempelhof uh, to get out and landed in Tempelhof. But very often they were passenger planes that, that somebody hijacked and said, I want to go to Tempelhof. We always, because we don't support hijacking, we didn't want it to look like we were we were encouraging hijacking. Yeah. So the hijacker was always given a prison term, but it was basically it was a pretty light prison term. It was like less than a year in prison. And then they were let go. And word got out that, you know, people were willing to do this to get out of Poland. 
and we had uh, we had a lot of these, and we had a whole drill of when there was you know we get get the message another another plane coming into Tempelhof. But the the the, the interesting thing was when we hide when it involved a passenger plane that was hijacked. We would always keep the passengers on the grounds that we had to investigate the thing. We would keep the passengers overnight. And a lot of the other passengers on the plane knew they had the option of staying in the West if they wanted to. That we would keep them. And particularly, you know, they weren't involved in the hijacking, but they just suddenly found themselves in West Berlin. And they had to make a decision. Am I going to go back to Poland or am I going to take advantage of this and stay in the West? And it was amazing. Sometimes you would see families like all night huddling, trying to make this decision. (laughs) Should we go back? Should we go back or should we stay here? And out of each flight. Out of nowhere, it's just open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, suddenly you're in the West. Uh, You know, in each flight, there was a certain number of people who who were not the hijackers, but who simply said, we don't want to go back. And the Poles, of course, were so embarrassed by this. They, They were trying to stop it. They were putting more and more air marshals on these flights. I think on the last flight, there were like three air marshals that they had. But the guy still hijacked, <laughs> he still hijacked the plane. I can't remember how, but they had like three air marshals. And one of the air marshals, I think, stayed because he knew he was in such trouble for letting that plane be hijacked that even one of the air marshals decided to stay in West Berlin. But it was fascinating. It was just the human drama of this, you know, was so interesting to watch. And I mean, this is a momentous, a life changing decision that suddenly is before you and you sort of have 12 hours to make a decision. We would get protests from the Soviets and everything and basically the whole mission was involved but we had we had Polish interpreters and, and the Germans already then. We had a whole team that was ready for this after right. the first couple of ones and we would actually all get into helicopters and fly to Tempelhof to be there quickly, you know. The military would put us into helicopters and we would fly to Tempelhof. But it, it was it was one of the fascinating things. And then somehow they stopped. I guess the Poles definitely figured out a way to crack down on them. But there was that period when, boy, the Polish, it was like a joke, you know, all the Polish planes coming into Tempelhof. It was amazing. 83 or 80? It was like 84, 85. 45. Yeah, 84, 85. You know, we had maybe 10,000 troops and we were surrounded by... Right, 17 right. divisions. Yeah, we were a tripwire. Yeah. We were a tripwire, and we were human yeah. shields to some, to some extent. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, mean, I know there are gradations of, like, you know, a crisis, but what was your plan? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, what was the plan? Well, yeah. yeah, well, uh, no, you're, I mean, there was a plan for the defense of Berlin. I, I can't remember it now. It was somehow going into the the metros, you know, and doing, came up a different <laughs> metro stuff. But everybody knew we were a tripwire. Look, everybody sort of knew that if by then, if, if, if the Soviets try to take Berlin, it's probably World War Three. you know. Yeah. It was, we were a tripwire for the nuclear umbrella. And sometimes I, I, I tell people, you know, it's, it's quite amazing that Americans were really willing to make this commitment to your city. We were saying that we would fight a nuclear war in which the U.S. would probably be greatly damaged for the sake of defending this one little city 
that most Americans have never seen and probably never would see. But the United States made that commitment. Not many countries would really do that, you know. But we made, we, you know, we made we made that commitment, and we knew we were a tripwire. But but frankly, we were not we were not worried about this. What we were more worried about toward the end of my time was German radicalism, the Bader Meinhof gang, and, sure. and 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 things like that. That that started That started becoming particularly during the INF debate, as the INF debate heated up and. There was a lot of German opposition to deploying medium-range nuclear weapons to counter the Soviet SS-20s. There was German radicalism that erupted, and a lot of German radicals came to Berlin, to West Berlin, because there was no draft. If you lived in West Berlin, you were exempt from the West German draft. So we were we started worrying for security reasons about about West German radicalism. Had you met with any of their representatives? These no, grounds? no. And fortunately, we never really had a had a problem in in, in our time. But that's what became started becoming a, a greater worry than the Soviets. The, the situation in Berlin was really had gotten remarkably stable by the time I was there. Yeah, yeah. it's turning out to be like a success yeah. story. In, in the but Cold still War. a fascinating place. The Berlinery, I'm sure. Oh, the Berlinery. Of, yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed the Berlinery <laughs> that we've had for the past. But anyway, thank you very much, Ambassador Perrin, for talking with me today. Sure. You've been listening it was a pleasure. To-